listening to The Grueling Truth. I'm your host, Mike Goodpastor, and as always, I would like to welcome in my host, or co-host, Matt Andrews-Cabbage. Thanks very much, Mike. Always good to be here. Well, I mean, we like I said, we have a special guest today. Usually our show's at 11 at night, but like we had Roger Craig on a couple weeks ago during the day. you got to accommodate some people, and this is definitely a man that needs to be accommodated. I mean, I'm really excited to talk to our guest today. I wrote an article in Sports France about Tom Flores about a month ago and how I thought he should be in the Hall of Fame. When I did the research on it, though, and looked at everything that he accomplished, I thought it was dang near criminal that he wasn't in the Hall of Fame compared to some of the other coaches that were in. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome in our our guest, former Raiders coach Tom Flores. Hey, how you guys doing? Good. Real good. All right. Yeah. All right, I'd like to start off with a question. Um, there was a guy, I'm, I'm a defensive coach, coached for 23, 24 years, and I think one of the most underrated coaches in the NFL was Coach Charlie Sumner, who was your defensive coordinator for two Super Bowl wins. I was just wanting to know if you had, you know, what, what, what's one of your best memories about Coach Sumner and how he had an effect on those great Raiders teams of the early 80s? But Charlie and I go back uh, for for uh, decades, really, because he came to the Raiders uh, initially. He came uh, in 1983 when Al Davis took over as head coach and general manager. He was a defensive backfield coach. He had just finished playing his career in the NFL with Minnesota. So uh, he came, and that's how I got to know him. In those days, we only had four coaches, uh, and so everybody got to spend a lot of time together. So I got to know him pretty well then. And then he left for a period of time. Uh, I followed him. He was at Pittsburgh and, uh, and, and I'm not sure where I think maybe New England. But a, and then uh, when I became head coach, uh, I brought him back because uh, he was available. Uh, he wanted to come back. And I knew that I knew what he brought to the table, which was uh, uh, tough players. He always made the defense tough they uh and he was a really a good game day mind uh, and made real good decisions on game day as far as the game plan and uh the adjustments that had to be made and that's that's what i thought i thought that, that is where his strength was what was it like to play in uh in the old afl the old american football league well that was uh <laughs> that was pretty unique because uh it was a league that was uh uh, doomed. Uh, it wasn't meant to survive, uh, but it did. I mean, it it, it struggled, and um, it, some teams had to move. Like the uh, the uh, Chiefs started out in, in Dallas, and and uh, they had to move uh, in, into Kansas City because uh, there wasn't room for the Chiefs and the Cowboys at the same time. They were the Texans at that time. Uh, the the some teams had to change ownership. There was a lot of money, uh, but there was enough money with Lamar Hunt as one of the backers and uh, to keep it going until television took over. And, and uh, we were a bunch of guys that wanted to play. We loved the game. Uh, there wasn't room for everybody to play in the National Football League. So all of a sudden this new league gave us all a chance to uh, to do what we thought we were good at, and uh, it survived. It survived. It became uh, pretty dominant uh, conference for a while, and uh, I was kind of bummed when they dropped the name of the American Football League. 
in the Mass American Football Conference because I thought I would have liked to have kept our identity. There were there were only uh, uh, twenty of us that survived the ten years of the league. Uh, Broadsdale was one of them. Yeah, that was, that was one of the things that impressed me was just your playing career because I didn't realize you were that good of a player. I know you ended after the ten years. You, I think you're the fifth leading passer in AFL history. And that brings me to my next question, which was, I know you were with the Kansas City Chiefs. I think you backed up Lynn Dawson in Super Bowl Four. When that season was over, what made you want to get into coaching? Well, when that season was over, I still I still was, that was 1969. That was the last year of the AFL. And I still wanted to, still wanted to play. So I came back in 1970, and I uh, was with the Chiefs. Uh, did not make the final roster, but I stayed on their practice squad. Uh, was inactive for the whole year. Uh, uh, in those days, we only had two quarterbacks that were active, so I was one of them. And uh, uh, I mean, I was one of, one of the inactive ones, and Gangstrap kept me around for security in case anybody went down. And then after that, I felt maybe it was time to move on. Uh, Tried to catch on with anybody that was interested. Nobody was interested. So I got an opportunity with the Buffalo Bills to start coaching. They had a, a vacancy about two days before the training camp started. They had Their head coach had uh, resigned in an argument with Ralph Wilson. And uh, so they called me up and asked me if I'd uh, come in and help them out just for that season. So I did. All of a sudden, overnight, I was coaching the National Football League and, and putting the offense and it was kind of exciting, and uh, and then the next year I, I flashed on with the Raiders in, in back in Oakland, where I lived anyway, and and the rest is kind of a a nice history. Coach, uh, who was well, the you... biggest influence on your coaching style? Well, it's uh, I'd say my basic philosophy, the the, uh, the basic. Uh, interest. Uh, I, I, mostly, I got most of my philosophy out from Al Davis and his approach. Uh, I'm a quarterback. I like to throw the ball. Uh, I like the big plays. Uh, so that was where I got a lot of my my background as far as my philosophy is concerned. But I I try to grab a little bit here, a little bit there from every coach that I ever played for, and uh, what I liked about them, and what and and also what I didn't like about them and try to utilize anything that would fit with my personality uh, on either either end. Don't do what you don't like, what you didn't like, and don't forget what it was like to not like that, and, and uh, you know, go on and on. So I think that's how I developed my personality. I liked Hank Stram, the way he was organizing his practices and meeting schedules, and, and uh, that was always enjoyable. You know, I go all the way back to college and, and high school, even with – little bits here and there about personalities and what to take here and what to, what to not take. All right, you talked about your first coaching job. I believe Sid Gilman was the head coach there. And no, uh, Sid, no, with, no? Uh, where, where are we talking about? In Buffalo? Yeah. No, no, when I was in Buffalo, they, they, the guy that was there that had, had quit was a, guy, was a coach named John Rouch. And uh, Rouch, coincidentally, was my coach. In Oakland, um, you know, when Al Davis left to become commissioner, Rouse took over, and he's the one that actually traded me to Buffalo, and then he comes to Buffalo, and then he lets me go. Um, 
and then he quits, <laughs> and I come back to Buffalo to start my coaching career. Uh, Sid Kilman was the kind of the, the guru of, of a lot of coaches. Uh, the coach there, John Rauch, had taken uh, the, the page from Al Davis, who, who took a, a page from uh, Sid Kilman. And uh, so it was all, they were all related. That's one of the reasons I was there, because I knew the systems pretty well. Sid Gilman was a remarkable guy. I mean, he was just uh, a Mr. Football as far as I was concerned. He was the way his mind uh, ran. And just in, in offense, he loved offense. Uh, and uh, that's where Al Davis got a lot of his his background. For, uh, when when you uh, took over for the Raiders' head coaching position in 1979, what do you feel was your biggest challenge? Well, my biggest challenge we needed we needed a little rebuilding. Um, we had gotten a little bit a little bit old and rusty. Uh, we didn't, you know, we weren't doing anything wrong. We were still doing the right things, but we just needed a few changes. When I took over. Uh, and we had to won the Super Bowl in '76. We'd had good years. John Bandon had a great career there, winning you know over 100 games in 10 years. That's pretty remarkable. And uh, so I needed. I didn't. I knew I didn't. Uh, I wasn't going to be John Bandon. Uh, that's not my personality. So I uh, I needed to uh, help rebuild. And uh, get our own identity, get my identity, and uh, and we did it slowly, uh, but not too slowly, because my second year there, we were able to win a Super Bowl in doing so. And when we won a Super Bowl in 1980, there were only 11 guys on that team still from Super Bowl 76. So that was a pretty pretty good turnover in those days. Yeah, that's one of the things in my article that I noted. It was the fact that everybody thought that you just took John Madden's team and won with it. And it was a completely different team. And the 1980 season, I believe you guys traded for Dan Pastorini. He was your starting quarterback. And I believe week four or five against Washington, he broke his leg. And Jim Plunkett mm-hmm. came in to start. Jim Plunkett was considered a bust early in his career at San Francisco and New England. What do you think was the big turnaround for Jim Plunkett's career? Was it just being with a better team or was it something else? I think it was a combination of being with a good team uh combination of being of uh, the system fitting what he did best, which was uh he was a strong arm quarterback, was able to throw the big play and was able to make big plays and big games and I always identified you know great players as, as having that ability. Big plays and big games of which he did. He did all the way back to Stanford and uh, winning the Heisman and, and in the Rose Bowls that he played in. Uh even as a rookie. He was rookie of the year in the, in nineteen seventy or 71, whatever that was. and So it was, so when we took him, uh, I worked him out, I was an assistant, and we just signed him in 1978. Um, he was a, he was free agent, so Ron Wolf brought him over. I worked him out in front of John Matt and Al Davis and Ron Wolf, and, uh, and uh, I thought he was, nothing wrong with him. I thought maybe he was physically damaged, but he wasn't. He still had his arm, he still could move decently, and, and, uh, so we just signed him and made him third string and let him regain some of his confidence and, and learn our system slowly. There was no immediate rush to get him into the game. Uh, my and So that was in 78, then my first year as head coach. Uh, so we still had Stabler, so Stabler and Plunkett. And then in 80, we traded for Pastorini. 
which I really didn't want to do. Uh, I I felt we should just go on with Plunkett and and uh, and see what we get in the draft, which we got Mark Wilson that year anyway. So, but uh, but I was outvoted by, uh, by our owner. <laughs> he was he had the hammer, <laughs> and. Uh, so we had fast reading, and but Dan, we were probably going to make a change anyway. He was struggling. Dan did, had trouble adjusting to our system, and Jim was perfect for the system. And we had enough guys that uh, that knew how to win, and were able to give us. We made some good trades, picked up some good free agents. We got Bobby Chandler from Buffalo. We got Burgess Owens, uh, played with the Jets. Plunkett, uh, uh, I said, Kenny King. We traded for Kenny King, running back. Of Shaw and Shell were still able to give us another good year, and, and uh, so we just uh, we got Raymond Chester back after we had traded him earlier in his career as a tight end, and so we were able to uh, to play, make big plays in big games. Lester Hayes had a marvelous year, and uh, we made it as a wild card, which is a, a tough way to do it. Tell us about some of your uh, favorite uh, moments from that playoff run, you know, going and uh, playing against uh, San Diego, uh, the Cleveland game, and then ultimately what it was like to coach opposite um, Dick Vermeil. Well, we had, you know, as I mentioned, we were the wild card, and we were going in, and we played. Uh, we had to win our last game in New York, which we did, in order to qualify, because San Diego had a, had a great year that year, and uh, they were they were going to win our division, uh, we needed to qualify. So we did. And the first team we played was Houston, which was uh, Stabler and Casper, two of our great players that uh, we had traded to Houston. And uh, after we made that trade, they were going to pick to go to the Super Bowl. So we were playing them in the wild card game. It was kind of fun to play against them and uh, play against the stake and knowing his – his uh, tendencies, and and so we blessed him pretty good from his blind side, and, and we're able to get him. Uh, and our defense played really well. That was that was uh, one of the other things that Charlie Sumner came up with in his game plan is how to get this snake. And uh, we we beat them pretty handily, and then and then we uh, had to go to Cleveland, and that was the, the the thing I remember about that game is that it was 39 below chill factor. Uh, in that game, and we were freezing our tushes off. Uh, but yet our guys, uh, you know, they all week long, our guys responded really well to it, and, and it was a very close game, uh, playing on a frozen field, uh, big plays, and then Mike Haynes making a big, Mike Davis, excuse me, making a great uh, interception late in the game uh, to keep them from scoring and beating us, and uh, and so that was one of the great th- moments of that game because um, we were uh, – that was just uh, almost an impossible game to play in those kind of conditions. And then we come home and going to San Diego and playing beautiful weather against San Diego, which we knew well. And uh, we couldn't stop them, but they couldn't stop us either. So it was a matter of who had the ball last. And and uh, one of the, the, uh, the great moments of that game was when there were about six and a half minutes left and uh, we uh, we had the ball, and Ted Hendricks, I'm talking to Plunkett and, and going over what what we needed to do. I knew that we didn't we had to throw the ball if we needed to because we didn't want to give the ball back to them. And uh, Ted Hendricks comes over my shoulder. He 
and yells at us, don't let them get the ball back because we can't stop them. <laughs> so I, I looked at him like, I looked at him, I said, you know, that's a nice thing to say right now. <laughs> but we held the ball. We held the ball the entire rest of the game and uh, and won that game uh, by one touchdown. And then uh, then we're off to uh, New Orleans and the, the great uh, Philadelphia Eagles with Vermeil, who we had played earlier that year. And they had beaten us uh, in a low-scoring game. and uh, But we were so ready that we were peaked at the right time. And uh, our guys had uh, enjoyed themselves in New Orleans, and, and we enjoyed ourselves for the game. And Dick and his group, they went back into training camp session mode, and, and, uh, and but the game was never even close. All right. Um, I know what a lot of people want to know about was, what was your relationship as a coach with Al Davis? Well, it was good. I had a great relationship as a, as a, as a coach. Uh, as I was his quarterback when he came to, to Oakland, so I played for him. So I do him in that respect, you know, as far as that relationship, player, player, coach relationship. And then uh, when when I came back as an assistant coach, um, I knew him in that kind of a relationship. And and then we also had a friendship off the field uh, that was developing through those years, and a loyalty. I mean, I was very loyal. To all the things that he had done for for me and my family, and uh, through the years as uh, as uh, assistant coach, a head coach, and um, so we uh, we we got along real well. I mean, we 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 always we never it wasn't always uh, teachers were great because there were moments there where where he would get mad at me and uh, I could get mad at him, and where we didn't disagree, but we were always on the same page. Uh, where and that was I think. I understood his moves. I understood what he wanted. Sometimes I couldn't deliver, and that's what he got mad at me. And, and uh, but I did deliver enough where where I stayed there long enough to to do have a, a good career with him. But he was a uh, he was a tough guy to work for, but he was a fair guy. And the fact that he worked with you, he he didn't. Uh, it wasn't one of these guys. He just walked in after the game and, and criticized everything you did. He would work with you. Uh, with the draft, he, he ran the draft with Ron Wolf and and, uh, and myself, and then uh, with the trades, and uh, he offered his opinions on a lot of things. Some some of them were taken, some of them were not. It's just like everything else. So there's not every opinion is is the right one. And uh, but he had his hand in in he had his his finger on on the game at all times. He, he this was his passion. He loved this game. And he never did anything or tried to do anything to hurt it. So we had a good relationship all the way till the very end, which is a very sad day. We just uh, got a tweet here about uh, a question about the other Super Bowl run. Which do you think was uh, a tougher um, run, the 1980 run or the 1983 run? I thought the 81 was because of how we did it. We had to do it. You know, we were two and three after five games. So, our starting quarterback had a broken leg. Uh, you know, we were struggling a little bit. On, uh, we were moving the ball well, but our, we couldn't stop anybody. And then our defense started getting played better. Our offense was able to outscore people uh, as we finished the rest of the season to finish 11 and five, and uh, and make it as a wild card. Um, 
but you know, we it wasn't uh, we weren't dominating, but we were winning, and we were making the right place, the good play, big place, at the right time. Um, and when we when Jim took over, he was able to give us that a bit that capacity or that that kind of a game. Um, the last latter part of the year, where we made some big plays and beat Pittsburgh on, down the, the stretch on the Monday night and and things of that nature. Eighty-three, we had a great team. Uh, we should have been in the playoffs. We I mean, we just had a great team. We had we had, I don't know. We had uh, we still had Plunkett. We had Marcus Allen. We had uh, Cliff Branch was still at his A game. Uh, Todd Christensen was a Pro Bowl tight end. Um, we had Hendricks. We had Howie Long. Uh, Mike Haynes, Lester Hayes, um, Lyle Zeto. I mean, we had players. I mean, we had players that were at their peak. So we should have been a good – and we showed it in the playoffs. We dominated all three games at the playoffs. Well, let's go back a little bit to when you were assistant with the Raiders because I don't think we got any John Madden questions in, and he was obviously a legendary football coach. I mean, what kind of guy was he to work for? Well, John was a good guy to work for. We worked very closely together because uh, we spent many hours in that building and, and late at night uh, working on game plans and things of that nature. And you get you spend a lot of time in training camp, so you get to know you you get to know the personalities of everybody. So he was uh, uh, at times a little volatile and uh, very emotional, uh, but he was a real good game day uh, coach. Uh, operating and executing the game plan very well, uh, managing the clock. Um, we had great players in those days, and uh, great team. The one thing that the one thing that we had in those in the seventies is uh, you had players that never left you because there was no free agency, so you had the same players all the time until you didn't want them anymore. And uh, when you played teams, it was. It was almost like a reunion playing the other teams because they had the same players all the time. So uh, that helped coaching. Uh, there weren't a lot of changes that you made every year. So that was a, a consistent thing as far as coaching is concerned. And we were able to capitalize with that. And uh, But uh, you know, John, John uh, he did a good job. The players liked him. Uh, he was a good coach for the players. And uh, and then he went on to the bigger and better things after he got out. One of the players that uh, I was always intrigued with, uh, you guys, you had Marcus Allen. What was it like to coach him, and uh, how much did he help your game plan with his unique skill set? Well, we got uh, Marcus. Uh, we uh, – we knew him pretty well because John Robinson was a good friend down at NFC, and he had told us a lot about him. We had watched him, and, and uh, we we didn't think we were going to be able to get him when we picked him in the draft. Uh, we thought there were some teams ahead of us that were going to take him, Minnesota being one of them and Houston being the other, but they passed and went with different players. Uh, so when it came our chair, and then Al Davis was, at that time, was uh, down in Los Angeles in the courtroom, ballet, uh uh, the move was still battling the move to, to Los Angeles. Uh, that was '82, uh, and uh, so we we got him when it was our turn. We got him out of the uh, out of the uh, courtroom. <laughs> he came out on a payphone. There were, cell phones were not a big thing in those days, and uh, was on a payphone talking to us. And uh, Ron Wolf and I were running the draft, and 
and uh, we we, just, we uh, made sure that he was on the same page with us when we said this is where we're going to go with. So we took him. So when we took him, uh, we knew that what his strengths were. Uh, we knew that he was a, a great runner, obviously, but we also knew that he was a good blocker and a great pass receiver. And so we put the eye formation in, which we had never used before. And uh, in, in addition to what some of the stuff that, that we had run, uh, which is perfect for him because he was just a great player. There was another guy that made a lot of big plays and big games. And we put the run play pass in, and we also threw to him a lot out of the backfield. So he was a big part of our offense coming in as a rookie. Uh, but, you know, we had always included our running backs with uh, with the passing game. We'd always thrown at them a lot out of the backfield. Kenny King being one of them, Clem Dales way back in the 60s. Uh, so, so it wasn't anything new, but we just did it a little bit more often. And, and you change a few things, very subtle changes, but to accommodate the, uh, the abilities of these guys. And Marcus was just as complete a football player as you ever want to see. Well, um, and, a, and, a, and, and a tough guy, and a tough, tough guy, and a leader right off the bat. I mean, he was a tough guy. Yeah, you could see that when he went to Kansas City. Uh, he had a lot to do with turning that team around. Um, yeah, sure you did. You coached Bo Jackson his rookie season also, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. There What's was, your take there on was Bo Jackson? Uh, well, Bo was, Bo was probably the, he, he's the most impressive running back I've ever been around. Because he was he was an instant running back threat. I mean, he could he was 230 pounds and he was the fastest guy on our team, uh, and powerful. Uh, I mean, there was nothing that he couldn't do, and and we just touched a little bit on his abilities because we didn't have him the whole year. We didn't have him in training camp. We didn't have him in in many camps off season. So we just had to plug him in wherever we could, and at that time, we still had Marcus Allen, and uh, so now all of a sudden, I've got both of them, so I'm trying to figure out how to utilize both of them, and, and, and our team was slipping a little bit, because we needed to, to replenish some of the players that, that slipped in their abilities, and and uh, but we were still able to utilize Bo and, and Marcus in the same backfield, and, and uh, he was something. Bo Jackson was just uh, an incredible Human being and and uh, a remarkable athlete. All right, hey, real quick for the people listening in, our live show will end at the top of the hour, approximately two minutes forty seconds. If you want to hear the rest of the interview with Coach Flores, probably about a half hour after the show's over, somewhere around three thirty four o'clock, the podcast will be up. You can listen to it whatever you want. Um, Matt, Coach, um, what was? Uh your most either most memorable or most difficult coaching matchup across the sidelines? Well, let me see. Most memorable? Obviously, the Super Bowls that I coached in were, the, were two of the most memorable ones uh, because of what they meant. You don't realize until it's over. You know, being the Super Bowl 15 being probably my favorite of all of them. Um, because of how we did it, how we got to New Orleans in the last few minutes of the game, you're you're standing there on the sideline and you're just starting to reflect because you know the game is just about over and there's no way they're going to catch it and you're going to be the world champs and, and all of a sudden uh, 
you know, you, you start tearing up a little bit and, and you feel good about everything you've done and you're happy for the players because they're, they're showing it in their faces and, and you're happy for guys like Jim Plunkett who, who resurrected himself and, and uh, guys like Bobby Chandler who we had gotten from Buffalo, Burgess Stones, and, and and those guys that had never, ever been part of a Super Bowl and all of a sudden they're world champions. That's what the great feelings in sports is all about, when you can do something and accomplish something like that as a team and as an organization. So those, that was a real great feeling for me. Well, um, let's talk about the question, the story I wrote about the Hall of Fame. I mean, I just want to know quickly. I mean, we don't want to beat it up here because – Really, there's nothing anybody can do about it except for the people to vote on it. But what are your feelings on the selection process that they use for Hall of Fame enshrinement? Well, I think it's a little antiquated. I think it's, uh, you know, they, they have to tweak it some because I don't think it's fair that the way that, and I don't even know, and I don't know that anybody knows what the process is. I think some of the voters, the modern-day voters, don't even know they're, they're they weren't even born when we were doing what we what we did. So, so uh, you've got people that are voting that don't really, in my opinion, know the history of the game and the history of the players in the game and what they did and what they've accomplished and how meaningful it was and how relative it is to what what is being done today. I mean, these guys today did not invent the game. You know, a, a, a retired player five years retired isn't any better than a player maybe that did the same things that he did 15, 20 years ago or 40 years ago uh, just because he did it more recent. I think that that, that that more time has to be taken. I think that the former players should be have a committee that has input. They, they, I mean, not the former players, the, the uh, players in the Hall of Fame now that are still alive, they should have a committee and some kind of a say also in uh, the selection. Uh, so there's a lot of things that need to be tweaked uh, with the Hall of Fame selection. You know, it's not, and I'm not saying it because I'm not in it. I'm just saying because that's the way it is. Look how long it took the guy to get in there, and he changed the entire putting game. Now, there are a lot of great yeah. putters, but he changed it. Yeah, I mean, that, no question. And if you don't believe that, you shouldn't be a voter. And there was one guy, and then yeah. there shouldn't have ever been a voter because he said, I'll never vote for a putter. Yeah, and that's stupid because Ray Guy should have been in a long time ago. I mean, he was one of the greatest punters, probably the greatest punter, and probably the greatest athletic punter. I mean, I know I watched that football life. The guy played quarterback, I think, in high school. I mean, he could do everything. Um, we, We talk about the Hall of Fame, and my problem with it is it's mainly just sports writers. And most of those sports writers they got anymore are under the age of 50 and don't even know what happened in the past. And that's my biggest problem with it. And the fact that I heard a quote, I forget who it was from, but they say that the the story of the game can't be written without this person is why they should be in the Hall of Fame. And I think just from studying your career, first minority quarterback, first minority head coach, first minority team president, first minority general manager, the stuff you did in the AFL, the two Super Bowl wins, I don't think there's any way the history of the NFL can be written without you in it. Well, I appreciate that, and I, I've never looked at it that way. But but I, and that was Ron Borgers, I think that that uh, made that statement when he was and 
and it's it's a legitimate statement uh, when you look at the history of the game. Uh, and I've certainly been part of it for a long, long, long time. Uh, definitely a history of the, of the AFL in those ten years, and uh, and many firsts in my life and successful um, parts of, of my professional career. So. Um, yeah, it's a great statement, and I think he's right. I think he's right. Uh, you've got to think about the whole picture. You can't just think about who's more popular right now and who's, uh, you know, who's on TV right now as a, as a commentator that retired five years ago. And because he's very popular on TV, that gives them an edge. I don't think so. Shouldn't. Coach, I'd like to also this, you know, second what uh, what, what Mike said to you. Um, I don't think there's any way the history of the NFL can be written, considering all that you've accomplished in your career. Uh, you've seen quite a lot of things, uh, you know, playing in Super Bowl four and then coaching in uh, two Super Bowls. What were the differences between, um, like, how did the Super Bowl change from Super Bowl four to Super Bowl eighteen, and then even onward? Well, all the hoopla, all the the uh, the. Um... Everything that surrounds the game. The game hasn't changed that much over the years on the field. Uh, what what surrounds the game has changed. The instant replay. Uh, that's a big part of the game today. Uh, um, some of the rules changes. Uh, today's game is more of a passing game than a running game. Uh, used to be uh, running used to be a big big part of it. In fact, used to be most of it. With the Super Bowl for Minnesota, that was their big straight was their running game and their defense. Uh, Kansas City, our straight was uh, the running game with with a play action. With with Lenny was was outstanding in, in the play action pass and, and a great defense. Um, so today's uh, Super Bowls and today's uh, teams are more pass oriented. Uh, the coverage of games is bigger than life. With all the uh, the media coverages, uh, media day, uh, um, you, you can't even go out, at, out for dinner at night without somebody sticking a camera in your face or, or taking a, a picture of you, or being or, or the fear of being on on uh, YouTube that night. Uh, so there's a, there's so much that goes with the game, um, and the money. The money is enormous now compared to. Back in the in the early years of the Super Bowl, the, the money is, that they make for the Super Bowl is uh, actually the money that they make during the season. Some guys make more money per week than they do for winning the Super Bowl. So that's how big the money has got. Uh, my next question. Oh, my next question basically touches on something I think Matt kind of asked a little bit earlier. But who were the coaches that were the toughest to game plan for? Like, who were the guys that you knew when you played their team they were going to be completely prepared and you were really going to have to go to the extra mile to prepare for them? Well, I'd have to say that uh, Chuck Nolan was one. Um, you know, with his uh, defense and, and great uh, defense, Steel Curtain there in Pittsburgh. Um uh, Coach Brown, uh, Paul Brown, was very well prepared. His teams were always well prepared. Uh, when you played against Don Correo and his uh, his offense were always dynamic, and, and uh, he was the first. You know, Eric Correo was the first, probably the first real true passing um, offensive team in, in, in pro football. 
And uh, there were, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, Bill Walsh uh, was always well prepared, and his teams were always uh, executed well. Those are all guys I can just off the top of my head right now. But there was, I'm sure there were others, but there were some places that gave you more trouble. Going up to the Cape Dome always gave us more trouble when I was with the Raiders. And then when I went with Seattle, I liked it up there because of the noise. <laughs> but it was, it was always tough to go up there and play because the noise was driving crazy. The Denver, going to Denver, was always tough to go into Denver because they would throw things at you. Uh, when you, you know, the, you know, the fan, the, the field was right on top of you. They would throw things at you. I had a, a D battery buzz by by ear one time when we were in Denver. So it was kind of crazy. Sorry about that. I had a little technical difficulty. Um, okay. Coach, uh, I've, I've heard uh, some interviews by some players, like even Sammy Baugh was saying, uh, how he had kind of longed that he could play in uh, today's NFL. Do you ever feel like uh, you wish you could play or coach in uh, in this league, or are you pretty uh, happy in the area that you uh, were able to coach in? Well, I think I could. I mean, I, I mean like I said, the, the game on, on the field hasn't changed that much, other, other than it's become more passing than, uh, than the runner-type uh, game. Uh, it, it's... Yeah, but all the little subtleties around the game have changed quite a bit. In other words, you have you have 53 guys now in a squad, uh, and you have uh, you know another 10 I think on the, on the uh, practice squad. So you, that's a lot of guys to practice with. We used to have very few guys to practice with, so everybody had to fill in, and that changed your approach uh, in practice and how you rested. The the rules changes has changed everything and, um, and the pressure the demand on a head coach uh, nowadays is so much greater than it used to be so there's a lot those things have changed uh, but the football hasn't changed uh, you know and the players I mean all the the exposure some of the the off field uh, things that are going on nowadays. Uh, you have to deal with that. So there's a lot that there's a lot in your dish nowadays when you're a head coach in the football league, where it wasn't in the old days because uh, the coverage wasn't as great and and uh, you didn't have as much um, uh, to worry about as players off the field. Well, so tell us what have you been doing since you retired? I know you do the radio broadcast for the Raiders. Yeah, I've been doing this for 15, 16, 17 years now, I think. Uh, the uh, the color on radio for the Raiders with Greg Papa. Uh, I have a good time doing it, and, and I get a chance to, you know, to be with a team that I spent most of my career with and, and had uh, uh, my success with. And uh, I get a chance to see some of my old friends and visit all the different cities that that uh, that I played in and uh, or coached in and. So it's fun. It's fun for me. It's enjoyable. And the best part of it, I get to go home after the game. I don't have to stay and, and relive the game the rest of the week. So I, that's what's fun. I enjoy that. I live down in Palm Springs, not in Wells, California, right on the golf course. And as uh, as we're speaking here, I'm watching people golfing by. 
if there is any kind of an advice that you could pass to uh, young coaches uh, or up-and-comers, uh, what would that be? Coach, your game. By that, I mean you can go to all the clinics you want to go to. You can read all the books on coaching that you want that that are available. And uh, but when when you have a passion for a, a type of game, uh, that's the game you want to coach. Just use the abilities that you've learned from others to do that. But it, because if you try to coach somebody else's game, somebody else's philosophy, uh, you're not going to do it as well as your own. You have to love what you do and what you what you're teaching, and, uh, and you're not going to be able to do that when you're an assistant coach. You have to coach what the head coach wants to coach. But if you ever become a head coach, you can do your own thing and and do it with a passion because that's what football coaching is. It's a passion. Well, Coach, it was definitely an honor to have you on the show today. Um, would love to get you back maybe during the season. We can talk about your Oakland Raiders a little bit. Okay, anytime, you guys. You guys be good. All Thanks right. Thanks very Thanks much a lot, for Coach. stopping by. All right. All right. We're good? Yeah, we're good. Okay, guys. Oh, I think I cooked Coach off. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> but, okay, guys, next week, I think we are close to confirming Don Mikowski. Is that true, Matt? That is true. Don, Don will be on with us uh, next Thursday. And it looks like Wednesday night we will have Joe Kelly, former linebacker for the Cincinnati Bengals, Super Bowl twenty three. We've had plenty of 49ers on for Matt, so now we'll get to talk to a Bengal. So that should be interesting. Hopefully Matt's not rude to him the way the 49ers were always rude to the Bengals in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm going to do my very best to restrain myself. Well, so – Another announcement we got is Matt put up a Facebook page. You can go to Facebook, look up The Grueling Truth, follow us there. All our show podcasts will be put up on there. Um, you can follow us at I'm at RiverMonster11. Matt, what's your Twitter handle? At MTA Scavage. At MTA Scavage. Um, both write on Sports Rants. I think we're also going to put the articles that we write on Sports Rants up on the Grueling Truth Facebook page. Um, but do you have any final closing comments, Matt? I really enjoyed listening to everything that Coach Flores had to say. Um, just what a, what a unique uh, interview because he played in the old AFL and coached in uh, one of the real golden eras of, uh, of pro football. And it's just uh, really great to hear all the things he had to say. Yeah, and when he coached there, that was the best team in the Bay, so. (laughs) (laughs) You're trying to provoke me. I I can feel it. Well, yeah, i got to try to provoke you. Nobody wants to listen to us, you know, sing Kumbaya or whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we're going to start uh, bringing up more more Super Bowl stuff from 16 and 23 for you. Well, I mean, you know what? As a 49er fan, you do have to bring uh, – it's like my son came in one day and told me, Dad, you know what Pittsburgh Steelers' favorite channel is? I said, what? He said, the History Channel. And it's actually uh, kind of going that way with 49er fans now, too. Well, just remember, we got a History Channel to go to. I don't know that the Bengals got a whole lot of channels. Oh, yeah, we got a History Channel to go to. It's just everything. It's, it's, <laughs> actually, it's not a History Channel. It would probably be – what's that horror channel, sci-fi or something? 
<laughs> It'd be a horror Probably channel with Lewis right. Billups dropping an interception in the Super Bowl and Pete Johnson getting stopped fourth and goal from the one. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, everybody, thanks for tuning in. If you want to listen to the show again, you can hit the podcast. Like I said, all of our podcasts will be on the Grueling Truth Facebook page. Um, we will see you next Wednesday night. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed.